We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. Tommy's here today. I am here today. The show is presented by MyBookie. Go to MyBookie at MyBookie.ag. Use my promo code KevinDC and they will match your original first deposit dollar for dollar. They're going to double your first deposit. You know, put in 500 bucks, you'll get an extra 500 to play with. Put in 1000 you'll get an extra 1000 to play with. Uh, obviously, football season now right around the corner. A week from Saturday, actually, uh, is the first college football Saturday. There aren't a lot of games, but there are. Uh, there's a Big Ten game, and um, I think UCLA plays. And then the following week is a full-fledged college football weekend heading into, believe it or not, Labor Day uh, at that point. Uh, Tommy's with me. Again, uh, Kevin DC at MyBookie, MyBookie.ag. Tommy's with me. I do want to get his reaction to Buck Hans on the show yesterday. If you missed that, go back and listen to it. 30 years ago this week, the famous Buck Gibbs Playboy interview. Um, and Tommy, uh, you know, I sent Tommy the uh, the interview as well. He's listened to it. He wants to weigh in on that. Got some NFC East talk for you today. I thought Kyle Allen said something yesterday that was interesting. Um, but... We're going to start the show with something that isn't Washington football team related today because you said you wanted to do this on the show, and I said I'm not totally familiar with the story, so I just took five minutes to go back and watch this video. The video of Naomi Osaka in Cincinnati before an event being interviewed in a press conference format. You'll recall that Naomi Osaka withdrew from the French Open um, after um, issues related to press conference anxiety, mental health um, issues related to press conferences, even though the French Open um, did uh, you know, uh, request to sit down with Naomi and her people to come up with something that would have been easier for her to deal with. Um, she didn't end up playing at Wimbledon. She's back. Uh, she did play at the Olympics. Um, she's back, and um, she had a press conference the other day in which Paul Doherty of the Cincinnati Inquirer um, asked her a question, and it got into about a four-minute um, segment, if you will. And I think the only way for you to understand what Tommy and I are going to discuss is to play it for you. 
But she's being interviewed, and Paul Doherty of the Cincinnati Inquirer asks her the following question. It's better to watch than it is to listen to, but we don't have that ability here. But here it is. If you've already heard it, just fast forward through the next couple of minutes, and then we'll get to our reaction. It's Paul Doherty from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Let's follow up on that last question. Um, you're, you're not crazy about dealing with, with, with us especially in this format, yet you have a lot of outside interests that are, that are served by having a media platform. I guess my question is, how do you balance the two? And, and also, do you have anything you'd like to share with us about what you did say to Simone Biles? Um, when you say I'm not crazy about dealing with you guys, what does that refer to? Well, you've said you, you don't especially like the press conference format. And yet that seems to be the, the obviously the most widely used means of communicating to the media and through the media to the public. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I would say the occasion, like when to do the press conference is what I feel is the most difficult. But, hmm. Sorry, I'm thinking. Um... I think we can move on to the next question, Naomi. Do you want to move on to the next question? Um, no, I'm actually very interested in that like point of view. So if you could repeat that, that'd be awesome. Uh, the question was that you're not especially fond of, uh, of dealing with the media, especially in this format. You have suggested there are better ways to do it, that, that we'd like to try to explore that. Uh, my, my question, I guess, was you also have uh, outside interests beyond tennis that, that are served by having uh, the, the platform that the media presents to you. My, uh, my question is, how, how are you able, how do you think you might be able to best balance the two? Um, I mean, for me, I feel like this is something that I can't, I can't really speak for everybody. I can only speak for myself. But ever since I was younger, I've had a lot of media interest on me. And I think it's because of my background as well as, you know, how I play. Um, because in the first place, I'm a tennis player. That's why a lot of people are interested in me. So I would say in that regards, I'm quite different to a lot of people. and. I can't really help that there are some things that I tweet or some things that I say that um, kind of create a lot of news articles or things like that. And I know that it's because I've won a couple Grand Slams um, and I've gotten to do a lot of press conferences that these things happen. Um, but I would also say, like, I, I'm not really sure how to balance it too, like I'm figuring it out at the same time as you are, I would say. Part of the fallout of what happened there was that Osaka's agent, um, his name is Stuart Duguid. Um, that's her, I don't know how to pronounce it, Stuart Duguid or Duguid or Duguide. Um, he ripped the reporter saying the following, quote, 
This insinuation that Naomi owes her off-court success to the media is a myth. Don't be so self-indulgent. The bully at the Cincinnati Inquirer is the epitome of why player media relations are so fraught right now. Everyone on that Zoom will agree that his tone was all wrong and his sole purpose was to intimidate. Really appalling behavior, closed quote. Uh, Go ahead. Um, You can have at it first. I mean, I would vehemently disagree. My tone would be this, that the agent is full of shit, that he's just, whether he caught some flack from Osaka after the press conference or just jumped, you know, to, as a preemptive strike uh, for questions like this, uh, I think it's, it's ridiculous. I think the tone was fine, and I think as part of your evaluation for everybody, uh, you should go read Paul Doherty's column in the Cincinnati in Cincinnati.com with a headline that says Naomi Osaka is honest, thoughtful, and could help many other athletes. It's one of the best things I've read about Naomi Osaka, uh, and it talks about all the all the weight on her shoulders, all the uh, all she's accomplished, and uh, it says, and yet she. Uh, Okay, where does it say this? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, I think I have so the part. Osaka, Osaka didn't ask to be a spokesperson for mental health or a vocal or visible fighter for racial justice, but she's accepted both roles. Problem is, she's not built for either. She's an introvert whose tennis success had put her high atop a public platform. It's all she can do to avoid vertigo. This is a this is a well thought out column certainly sympathetic of of Naomi Osaka. And for this clown to be calling Paul Doherty a bully sort of exposes to me the agenda that's going on here about them wanting to control basically the uh, what the tour does with her on a regular basis. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at some point uh, they try to negotiate uh, an agreement with the tour that says no questions about mental health. From the mental health spokeswoman. <laughs> so I think it's really important to watch it um, rather than read um, how this exchange went. Now, you don't get to see him. You just hear him. You see her. Um, because and she responded. She responded well. She, resp- she ultimately responded well. But you could see the um, – you could see her mind – really racing and thinking and there was I think in in my view there was some real mental anxiety with what she thought the question was and what her answer was going to be um I wanted to just you you read a really I I, I'm reading the column um you know as you were reading part of it and I've read more of it now in in just this last minute and a half but I think it's the, the paragraph you read is such a, a, a great 
paragraph, Osaka didn't ask to be a spokesperson for mental health or a vocal invisible fighter for racial justice, but she accepted both roles. Problem is she's not built for either. She's an introvert whose tennis success has put her atop a public platform. It's all she can do to avoid vertigo. It really is a, a, a incredibly well-written paragraph, but then he goes on. Um, this is Paul Do- Doherty or Doherty, however it's pronounced from the Cincinnati Inquirer. Doherty. Is it Doherty? Do you know him? Yeah. Okay. I, I know who he is. Okay. I'm familiar with his work. He's okay, Doherty. Okay. Um, I asked Osaka um, this on Monday. You're not crazy about dealing with the media, especially in press conference settings. You've got a lot of interests that are served by your media platform. How do you balance the two? Maybe she didn't understand the question, or maybe it made her uncomfortable. In the Zoom format, there's no room for discussion or nuance. I repeated the question twice. After a couple of 30-second pauses, Osaka said, this is something that I can't really speak for everybody, but ever since I was younger, I've had a lot of media interest on me, and I think it's because of my background, as, as well as you know how I play in the first place I'm a tennis player and we just played this for you but it's a really thoughtful answer that ends with um I've won a couple of grand slams I've gotten to do a lot of press conference where these things happen but I would also say I'm not really sure how to balance the two I'm figuring it out at the same time you are and he writes honest thoughtful and unlike any answer I've gotten in 34 years covering sports in Cincinnati now, maybe that's an exaggeration, and maybe you know part of this column was to write something super nice about her after this exchange blew up, and he probably took the brunt of it. I don't know. I didn't see it until right before this press conference, but let me also agree with you. The agent's comments are way off. There is nothing bullying about the way he approached it. In fact, I think he was careful to approach it. Now, the question itself is one many have asked, which is, here you are, you know, you know, not loving these things and having mental health issues over these press conferences, and yet you are, you know, and he didn't say this, but she is the, she just made more money in one single year than any female athlete in sports history. Um, Naomi Osaka did in 2020. And so she has all of these off court endorsement interests. And he's asking, you know, that requires quite the press commitment as well. So how do you, you know, how do you balance the two where one, you know, is a true commitment that, you know, results in all of these endorsements and, you know, I I don't think it was an unfair question. I think it was a well thought out question. I think it was certainly a question that could put her on the defensive a little bit because you're talking. But But if people are working for her, did not prepare her for that type of question then they're not doing their job. I mean, you got to say, people are going to ask you, how can you be this high-profile star and then not, not, you know, not want to talk to the media? Right. Yeah. That's, just, that's the logical... I mean, I had to... Everyone knew that was coming. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in the uh, video that I was watching to watch this exchange, the introduction was made by... The woman whose name escapes me right now, but she's the woman that's part of the Stephen A. Smith show with um, uh, with Kellerman, and she introduces it um, as, listen carefully to this very triggering question. 
Um, of I, course. I mean, come on. There's nothing trigger. Well, it, it ultimately did trigger a response, but it wasn't intended to be triggering, and it certainly wasn't bullying or self-indulgent. It just wasn't. In fact, you know, from what I, uh, I, I did not follow this story closely, and I haven't talked about it all week, and I'm glad you brought it up because I've been meaning to get to it. Um, but I did read something on Twitter late night the other night that said it was the biggest, you know, w- w- careful tiptoeing around um, a, a, a a player or a coach press conference that anybody's ever seen. Like everybody was incredibly, you know, careful and empathetic um, about uh, and sympathetic about you know her situation and how tough these things were to do, and that it was you know for the most part pretty benign until it got to this. And then, by the way, she was asked about the Haiti earthquake, you know, because she is part Haitian, and and, and she has donated she's donating her winnings right to uh, the victims of of the earthquake. Why can't we just say after that? Good question, really good answer. Yeah, it was uncomfortable. It appeared to make her uncomfortable. She appeared to be, you know, suffering briefly, uh, uh, you know, and and feeling some anxiety related to the question. By the way, welcome to the club. Um, Not that I'm trying to put, you know, everybody else that, that gets questions and is under pressure into the category of also having, you know, mental anxiety associated with it. But this is part and parcel to the job, and I know I know a lot of people want it to change. Um, whatever, um, have your opinion on that. But I thought she dealt with it really well and gave a really thoughtful answer, even though it really looked like she was stressing, you know, really stressing there for a couple of minutes. But ultimately, she gave a great answer. And here's what yeah. the Cincinnati Inquirer said in his defense, in Doherty's uh, defense. They wrote, "We appreciate the respectful dialogue with Miss Osaka at the press conference." It was a straightforward question that we felt led to a meaningful exchange. That said, we sincerely regret that our questioning upset her in any way, closed quote. It was straightforward, and it did lead to a meaningful, interesting exchange. She did uh, well. Look, I don't know. Hey, you did well, I, I, I Naomi. I agree with you. I, I agree with you. I agree she did. And, and again, if she's prepared by people she can trust, she had to know this was coming. And, again, she skipped Wimbledon this year following the uh, press, the French Open fiasco. But if she's ever going to play in Wimbledon again with the British press, yeah, yeah. you know? Right. I mean, so she's <laughs> going to have to be ready for this at some point. Yeah. Uh, and- unless she's going to start the Naomi Osaka tour. Right. And the number one fear and anxiety in most societies is public speaking. So, and people overcome that anxiety. There, you know, there is, there are things you can do, people you can see, you know, to help you lessen that anxiety, if not eliminate it altogether. And at some point, maybe even embrace the opportunity of public speaking, look forward to it. Now, the, the agent um, on the insinuation that Naomi owes her off-court success to the media is a myth. Um, you know, this is the epitome of why player media relations are so fraught right now. 
Um, look, the, the the part where he says that, uh, that everybody on Zoom agrees the tone was all wrong and the sole purpose was to intimidate, it, it really appalling behavior, is ridiculous hyperbole. Um, the world we're living in right now, it's not even close to, to, to what I took from it. Um, but there is this obvious debate, Tommy, about, you know, how much of these athletes' success, and I'm talking about more of their financial success, um, is assisted by the media. And would it be far different if if this media layer was cut out? I know we've had this conversation before, but that you know is sort of what he's referring to there. Right. And I would say at this point, uh, since that's kind of a, a subjective, uh, murky thing to basically nail down, the tour, the, the people who run the tour that allows these players to compete do think it's an important part of the tour success. So therefore, they have been steadfast in including this. If the players want to go out and start their own tour, have at it. Right, and they can create their own rules around it. Yes. You know... Um, so it is connected. It is connected because the tour thinks the health of the tour is important uh, to have these press conferences. And without it, the tour would suffer, and then its participants would suffer. So in, in that sense, it is connected. So I think, I think she'll get asked this question again. I think she'll get better at it. But what this gave us a glimpse of and we've seen this before with people with money a lot of times. I'm, I'm making a generalization here, and there's an exception to every rule. But people like, uh, particularly uh, stars, uh, media stars, uh, athletic stars, uh, movie stars, they're usually surrounded by people that tell them what they want to hear. They're rarely surrounded by people who will tell them things they don't want to hear. And his reaction to this is clearly gives you a glimpse as to what Naomi Osaka is being told behind the scenes by her people. You're, you're 100% right. You shouldn't be doing these press conferences, and these people are just vultures. <laughs> right. It's okay, Naomi. Yeah. You're bigger than this. You're bigger than them all. Um, okay. That's enough of that. Let's, uh, I want to get your reaction to hearing that Joe Gibbs, Steve Buckhantz thing, uh, uh, 30 years later, you've probably heard it at some point along the way. Um, but it is the 30 year anniversary. We did it on the show yesterday. We'll get Tommy's reaction to that. I also want to talk some NFC East on the program today. Uh, we'll do all of those things right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Two weeks away, the team is very spotty. That would concern me if I were the coach at this point, even with everyone saying it's the most talented team we've seen in a long time. Uh, that, 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 I might say, is ridiculous. Whoever said that? Who did say that? A lot of people have said Who's a lot of people? Playboy picked you to go to the Super Bowl. Playboy. Take it for what it is then, Playboy. Okay? Playboy picking football. You know? So anybody that would say this is the most talented team in a long time, Steve, all I'm saying is that's kind of ridiculous. And I've said it from the beginning. Now, people going to say it? Hey, fine. Go ahead and say it. That's kind of absurd. So I'm not taking that as a shot at our team. And it's certainly nobody around here has said that. I don't think that at all. I think we got a long ways to go, and we haven't won a division here in four years. So, I mean, we got serious problems, okay? So I'm just telling everybody that right now. So if anybody else thinks that, then they got my answer on it. Gotcha. There it was, Tommy. 30 years ago this week. Uh, Playboy, um, I had Buck on the show yesterday, um, but I want you uh, to give me your quick thoughts and also ask the question that you asked me before the show that people haven't heard yet about what you um, what you said about Buck. Well, you know, I love Buck. He's one of, one of the great all-time media people in this town. But I'll bet... When he asks that question and gives shot back with his question, I'll bet you Buck wished he had as as his go to answer anything but Playboy. Of course, he said it yesterday on the show. He yeah. and, and let me just tell you, he'd have been better off saying, "I think so." <laughs> he um he he said yesterday. He said, I, "I just that's my." He said, "That's my one regret." He said, first of all, I was reading it the night before, and I said, the articles, of course, um, you were reading the night before. Um, but he said, you know, after, after the reaction, he goes, why didn't I just say, well, the man that pays you, the owner of this team, just told me three hours ago that he thinks this is the best team you've ever had, and he right. expects a Super Bowl. <laughs> 
That would have been an answer. Right. That would have been a great answer. To which he said, Gibbs would have said, or he he talked to Gibbs about it later, and Gibbs apologized to him uh, down the road. Um, but Gibbs uh, said, yeah, well, if you had given me that answer, I would have said, well, of course that's what Mr. Cook uh, said. He, that's what he thinks every single year. This year's no different. You know, I, um, I went back, uh, interestingly, um, and this morning, interestingly to me anyway, because one of the things I thought and I wanted to make sure I was right about, and it turns out I wasn't right about it, is I thought that Washington really was, you know, the preseason pick by most people in 1991 to win the Super Bowl or to certainly be um, one of the, you know, Super Bowl favorites. And they weren't. You know, Playboy, you know, picked sports every year. Remember, Playboy was a big. Um, was a big uh, uh, preseason magazine on college and, and football predictions. People loved it, and as Buck said, and he's right, it was credible. They 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 had you know really good people writing and and predicting the upcoming football season. But the truth is, I went back and used Pro Football Reference because they give you this. Washington was plus 1,000 to win the Super Bowl. In the NFC, there were two teams that had better odds, the Giants and the 49ers. The Giants were the defending champions. They had right. beaten San Francisco in the NFC Championship game the year before. In what what was, in my, in my memory, it's one of the greatest NFL games of all time, the 15-13 to 13 NFC title game at Candlestick Park where Matt Barr kicked five field goals and Lawrence Taylor was all over the field and for, you know there was a forced fumble on Roger Craig late. It was such a great game as San Francisco was going for the three-peat. And they were a big favorite. The Giants won. They went on to beat Buffalo in the, you know, Scott Norwood missed field goal. With Jeff Hostetler, a quarterback. With Jeff Hostetler, a quarterback. So the Giants were plus 400. The 49ers were plus 400. And then came Washington at plus 1,000 and the Eagles at plus 1,000. And I'm talking about in the NFC. The Eagles over under win total was 10.5. Washington's was 9.5. And well, those were, were the Reggie White, Randall Cunningham Eagles, right? Yeah, uh, the yeah. Eagle, the Eagles were, were were a good team too. Now, the, the year before the you know was the nineteen ninety body bag game. Um, Buddy Ryan had been fired. Rich Kotite was the new head coach coming into Philadelphia. Uh, Buddy Ryan got fired after Washington got revenge in the greatest revenge game in franchise history, in my opinion, when they went to Philadelphia and went to the vet in the postseason after you know two months after the body bag game and beat Philadelphia, and Buddy Ryan ran off the field for the final time without shaking Joe Gibbs' hand. And then Washington lost to San Francisco the following week, 28-10 at Candlestick. But they came back in 91, and the Eagles were still good. The Giants were the defending champs, and Washington was supposed to be good, but they were really the fourth pick in the NFC to win the NFC championship. And then for the Super Bowl, Buffalo had better odds, and so did the Raiders and the Chiefs that year have better odds. Um, That would have been um, the the Marty Schottenheimer Chiefs. Yeah, right. Yeah, the uh, the, the Marty Schottenheimer... um, uh, Chiefs with, uh, you know, um, the old guy at quarterback who quarterbacked him that year. Montana. No, 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 no. Montana or wasn't was there yet. 
um, Montana. Wasn't there yet. Uh, Steve DeBerg. Steve DeBerg, who was okay. like, who, you know, who played until he was like 40. I think he and George Blanda are the two oldest. Actually, Brady's probably approaching that area as well. But they weren't, you know, um, consensus favorites anyway. Playboy picked him to, to win the Super Bowl before that year. Um, and, and a lot of people were pretty bullish about the team. You know, Tommy, the thing that I told Buck that I loved, I just loved hearing Joe. That's what that's vintage Joe for me. If anybody yes, suggested that they were the better team than any opponent or the better team heading into a season, oh my God, that was a way to get him tilted. He would just... There was he was the opposite as I as I've said many times he was the opposite of what the franchise has become over the last two decades he over delivered consistently um, and under promised consistently and uh, and that was him he just he did he didn't want to give anybody any reason to believe or pay attention to his team he wanted to sneak up on everybody it was hard to sneak up on people that year because they opened the season with a 45 nothing win against the lions then they beat the cowboys on a monday night then they shut out phoenix 34 nothing 3 of their first 5 games were shutout wins and of course they started that year 11 and 0 and finished 14 and 2 and didn't even have a close game in the postseason. You know, ripped through Atlanta in the seat cushion game, crushed Detroit in the NFC Championship game, and crushed Buffalo in the Super Bowl. I look, I, I mean, you know what I think of Joe Gibbs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I only covered him for one full season in 92. And uh, I, I'm betting, you know, what was interesting was. I wonder if he knew throughout the whole season that was going to be his last year. Well, it wasn't his last year. The following year was his last year. 92. Yeah. 92. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I covered him in 92. Yeah, you covered him in 92 as the defending knew. champs. Yeah, that year that I covered him, if he if he was going to bow out. Yeah, I don't know. that ninety. 90- a little bit looser than he had been in previous years. Right. That 92 year was um, – that was a – that that was a tough year, you know. Rippin held out, came in late. They were rocky early. They got blown out, you know, in the opener against the Cowboys on Monday Night Football. Well, they had their, their number one pick, Desmond Howard, which was a disaster. Was a he dis- held out too. Yeah, it was a disaster. He held out too, and then you know um, they they made a, a run from six and five to get back into the postseason. They. Had t- a great game, which, by the way, is another game uh, like maybe a year ago I watched, which is available on YouTube. Late in the regular season at Philadelphia, it was a crucial game in the playoff and division race. Um, they, they lost to Philadelphia 17-13. They almost scored at the end. And then they got completely um, upset in a game they were heavily favored against the Raiders in at the end of the year. They were a 14-point favorite to clinch a playoff spot. They lost at home. It was Saturday. And the following day, they needed Minnesota to beat, listen carefully, Brett Favre and the Green Bay Packers to eliminate Green Bay and get Washington into the postseason. And they did that. They beat the Packers 27-7 in a game that Minnesota didn't even need to win Washington gets in. Brett Favre is eliminated. I think that was his first year in Green Bay. Um, And then Washington goes to Minnesota the next week and pounds the Vikings in the the playoffs. 
And that was Joe yeah. Gibbs's last playoff win. They lost to the 49ers the following week out of Candlestick in a close game. You know, sort of a, a famous game for Brian Mitchell and Mark Rippon. They botched a handoff late in the game when they were on their way in to take the lead in the fourth quarter. And and that was it. That was the end. Um, Joe retired uh, two months later. And Buck broke that, broke that story. He was yes, the one that broke did. that story. Yeah. By the way, you know, I've never asked you this. Right. Tell me what you yeah. thought as being on the beat for one of the two major newspapers in the market. You're on the beat for the first year, and the first year Joe Gibbs retires in March of 1993, and it's a TV guy that breaks the news. Oh, I was off the beat by then. They had switched. They had put me on the Orioles in uh, the spring. Oh, okay. So I, I didn't feel any remorse. Okay. Not that I would have gotten it anyway, but uh, I wasn't the one who woke up uh, with a pit in my stomach after reading that. No, but the Post probably did. Buck, Buck, Buck beat me on a story about the talks between uh, Bill Collins and the Houston Astros he t- he, he about ta- buying the Astros. He talked about and, that and yesterday. From the DC. Yeah, he beat me on that one. Yeah. I said to him after we talked about you know the, him breaking the Gibbs story, I said, is that the biggest story? And he said, that one, and um, I broke the story. I had the story that Houston, and he told the story yeah. about how he got the story. Um, uh, about it. Everybody else thought it was the Giants or the Padres or other teams, um, and I was the only one that had that it was the Astros. And, of course, it fell apart. Yeah. Um, but right. but he was right that it was the Astros that were yes, going to be coming. Um, all right, I want the one thing I remember about that last game at, at uh, of the '92 season, the one they lost to the Raiders. I think the score was 38-35. I'm not really sure. And Vince Evans was the quarterback. He, he for the was. Raiders he was in that game. Yep. And my job at, at at that point, I had to go into the opposing locker room to to do their reaction and interviews with the Raiders. And I'll never forget this. In, in a corner locker room by himself was Bob Golick. And his shoulders are heaving, and he's crying his eyes out. He's just bawling. And I, I walked over to him, and uh, I asked him, what's the matter? You know, what, what happened? And he said, this was my last game. He said, I'm retiring. I'll never play football again. That was Bob Golick, not... Um, yes, not Mike Golick. Not Mike Golick, no, who was, was, you know... This was Bob right. Golick. Bob Golick, who went on to be a radio talk show host in Cleveland for years, I think. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. But uh, that was a pretty... He was very open uh, about, you know, the idea that it was over for him. You know, and he was a, he was, he was glad he went out with a win, and that was part of the emotion of winning a game. They they figured they had no chance of winning, but uh, that's as emotional I've ever seen any athlete in any in any setting I've covered. It was I remember that game vividly. Um, you know, it, it they all they had to do was win one of their final two games to clinch a playoff spot, and they had lost to Philadelphia in a draining game the week before. And so then it was a short turnaround because it was a Saturday afternoon game at RFK, 
And they right. lose to Vince Evans, twenty-one to twenty, I think was the final score. Oh, okay. You're thinking about the um, 38-35 game that Washington won um, in '83, I think. Man, anyway, um, okay. the uh, um, and by the way, Jay Schrader was a quarterback on that Raider team. He would be their their eventual starter. You know, um, the. Uh, no, he was the starter of the year before when they got to the AFC title game and lost to Buffalo. Right? I think that's right. I think Buffalo beat the Raiders before playing Washington. No, they beat Kansas City before playing Washington. They beat Buffalo before um, before playing um, uh, the Giants. I think that's what it was. Yeah, I think they played Buffalo before the Giants, and they played Kansas City. I don't know. I can't remember now. I remember Jay Schrader was the quarterback against the Bills when they lost 51 to nothing in an AFC championship game. That's what I'm remembering, and I can't remember if it was the year that they played the Skins in the Super Bowl or the year that they played uh, the Giants in the Super Bowl. And then I think Buffalo beat Denver, not Kansas City, but Denver in an AFC title game before playing Washington. Or I have that reversed. Whatever. Not important. Um, But, uh, yeah, that was a devastating loss, but... You know, typical of Joe Gibbs, Tommy, you know, the season appears to be over and then they get, you know, a reprieve with the Minnesota win over Brett Favre and the Packers the next day. They're in the postseason and he he had every trick up his sleeve when they went to Minnesota. They had a fake punt. He used Brian Mitchell a ton in the backfield and they crushed Minnesota. And then they were very close to beating San Francisco the following week at Candlestick, um, and they would have played the Cowboys in the NFC Championship game in Dallas. Instead, Dallas ended up beating San Francisco at Candlestick the following week for Jimmy Johnson's first Super Bowl um, win. Uh, speaking of Jimmy Johnson, and I want to I circle back um, to Washington football in the NFC East here in a moment. Um, did you see the story about what Jimmy Johnson told Dan Lebetard on a radio, sh- uh, radio show? Yeah, Jimmy Johnson told Dan Lebetard, I think it was yesterday, that in the 1998 season when he was the head coach and general manager of the Miami Dolphins, that he had a chance to trade with Indianapolis for the number one overall pick and select Peyton Manning, and he didn't pull, he didn't pull off the trade uh, because it was going to require their entire draft, which was a late first rounder, but two twos, two threes, like a four, five, two sixes and a seven in terms of the picks. He said on the Lebetard show, um, I'm looking for the quote. He said, uh, I, we nearly pulled off a trade for the number one overall pick in 1998, which would have been Peyton Manning. But it would have taken my entire draft board, but I could have made the trade to move up to get Peyton Manning. In truth, I talked to Peyton and Archie about it. Um, That's all the details I can give you. I probably gave you too much already, closed quote. Jimmy Johnson with Peyton Manning in Miami. uh, That would have probably worked too because Miami was already a playoff team. You know, they weren't a good yeah. team, but they were, you know, a nine and seven ish type of playoff team in Dan Marino's final, you know, couple of years there. So uh, he would have, I think he would have had one year behind Marino and then he would have taken over. 
Can you imagine going yeah, Marino uh, to I, Marino to to Peyton Manning? Marino to Manning. Well, let's remember. Didn't was Jimmy Johnson where there when they blew their chant when they let go of uh, True Brees? No, no. Or was G- that Nick Saban? Uh, that was Nick Saban. Yeah, Jimmy was long okay. gone. Jimmy was long gone at that point. Okay. Yeah. Okay, that was Nick Saban. Um. Jimmy, I want to look this up because I do. How long was Jimmy Johnson in Miami? He took over for Shula. Shula's final year was ninety-five or ninety-six, I think. Jimmy Johnson takes over in Miami. Hold on, he took over in Miami in ninety-six as the GM and the head coach. So Shula's final year was ninety-five, and he was only there for four years. And they, you know, they went eight and eight, then they went nine and seven, ten and six, nine and seven, and they went to the playoffs three straight years as a wild card team. Um, and then that was it. That was it. So he was only in Miami for four years, was only in Dallas. I think people forget this. He was only the coach in Dallas in for five years. Got two Super Bowls out of it though. Um, hell of a talent evaluator, one of the greatest, you know, you could put him right up there at the top of the list of coaches who are also phenomenal talent evaluators uh, and general managers. Um, up next, uh, the NFC East. How many teams can actually legitimately win it? We'll discuss that right after these words from a few of our sponsors. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis, not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as J.J. does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. I had... Ross Tucker on the show yesterday, and I asked him a question about, you know, give me a team that is sort of under the radar that you think is going to exceed expectations. And he said, Philadelphia, the Eagles are going to be better than people think. And he gave me, he gave me reasons for it. And he said, you know, Carson Wentz led the league in, you know, turnovers, interceptions, everything, sacks, and he didn't play the final four games of the year, which is really hard to do. 
Um, it's because the offensive line was a mess. They were very injured last year along the offensive line. Remember the opener last year against Washington um, when when Washington opened up the season with that win and they had like seven sacks in the game. It, it, Philadelphia had you know backups and backups to the backups all across the offensive line in that game. Well, I I responded to him with the truth and I think I said it on this podcast, you know, maybe a week ago. I I believe Philadelphia and the Giants are both underrated as well. I've already played both of them on overs for the season. I played uh, the Eagles over 7 plus 120 and I played the Giants over 7 and a half. And I like both of those teams to potentially be better than their over-under numbers. I think they're talented teams. And so I, I did a segment today, and we could have taken calls for two hours on this, but we did it for 45 minutes, and I put it out as a Twitter poll at Kevin Sheehan, D.C. How many NFC East teams do you actually believe have a legitimate shot at winning the division title this year? Because I do have this sense, and I always have, that our fans, especially right now, are really dialed into our team. And they've heard about Dallas, and they know Dallas is good, but they consider it to be a two-team race. They consider it to be Washington and Dallas, and like the Giants and Eagles are a major cut below those two. And I don't feel that way. I think any one of the four teams could win the division this year. There's no... I I, I did not include the Eagles. And, you know, I answered your poll. I always try to support your poll. Thank you. uh, On your show. But I had put three of the four. I did not put all four. Well, two was the leading answer, 37.2%. And that is, you know, a big portion of the Washington football fan base saying, well, it's us in Dallas. Because the odds, the handicappers have made Dallas a slight favorite over Washington. And then, you know, more in the distant long shots, um, the Giants and the Eagles. I'm just telling you, I believe that there's not one result, there's not one division order in terms of top-to-bottom finish, one through four, that if you told me it ends up that way in January, that I'll be shocked at. Not one. These teams, to me, are very close on paper. There are obviously a lot of question marks with every single one of these teams. Dallas defense, the Giants quarterback and offensive line, the Eagles certainly quarterback new coaching staff, Washington still quarterback. And so everybody's got, you know, nobody's totally, uh, nobody in this division looks like a 12 or 13 win team. And Ross said, I see the division being jumbled up and everybody being between seven and 10 wins. And I sort of see the same thing. I think any one of the four teams can win it. You think three, so you do not think Philadelphia can win it. But to be honest with you, I haven't given them much thought. I just, I just, I'm going by when I saw them last year. Like, again, I'm dialed in to the Washington football team. I know, as is our fan base. And that's yeah. why, you know, that's why if you're being objective and you know our team, you can say, look, last year. Yeah, they won the division, but they played a ton of backup quarterbacks and even third-string quarterbacks. 
And, you know, it, it, was, it was a terrible division, and they only won seven games. And it's the same thing like a Philadelphia team uh, or fan can say about their team because they watched every single play of every single game. And let me just give you a quick Philly, you know, recap from last year. They were decimated along their offensive line. They played multiple quarterbacks, you know, during the course of the year. They have very good defensive talent. They have very good offensive line talent as well, if it's healthy, with Lane Johnson and Brandon uh, Brandon Brooks back and Dillard and Kelsey. Their defense, you could make the case that it's the second-best defense in the division, but it's not that far behind Washington's defense with Barnett and Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham, and they added Eric Wilson and Anthony Harris to go with Darius Slay, etc., um, but here's the thing that I just want everybody to um, to hear because I think when you think of Philadelphia, you're like, well, they got Jalen Hurts. They're not a threat to win the division. Well, Jalen Hurts last year, when he came in and played for the Eagles with very limited tools, playmaker-wise, with a banged-up offensive line, he played well. Jalen Hurts was pretty damn good. The first game he started, they beat New Orleans, one of the best defenses in the league. In that game, in his very first start, they beat the Saints 24-21. He runs for 106 yards. He throws 17-30 for 167, one touchdown, no interceptions. He has one turnover in the game. It was a fumble on a run, but he rushed for over 106 yards. His next game, they go to Arizona. He lights the Cardinals up. They just couldn't stop the Cardinals. They couldn't get the Cardinals off the field. He throws for 338 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, and he rushes for another 63 yards. See, I liked Jalen Hurts coming out of Alabama, Oklahoma. My one thing about Jalen Hurts is he's very casual with the football and he's going to turn it over, and he does. He does turn the ball over too much, but he's also a big-time playmaker. Like in that Arizona game, he had three fumbles but didn't lose any of them. But he rushed for 63 yards, threw for 338. Like I, I, I cannot discount the Philadelphia Eagles from being a contender in this division. I cannot wow. I cannot dismiss the Giants as potential contenders in the division. I, I get that. I, I get that. I mean I saw enough of Daniel Jones and if Barkley is healthy to believe that the Giants will be formidable. Uh but the Eagles, I just didn't see that coming. I don't think we ever see anything coming in the NFC East. I did this, you know, um, you know, the NFC East hasn't had a division repeat winner since the Eagles in 2004. And since 2004, there have been 16 division winners, and 12 of them before the season started were predicted to finish third or fourth in the division. Washington, Washington's three division wins, you know, going back to 2012, then 2015, then last year, they were picked last. In, to, in the division each of those three seasons, and they won the division. And, so, you know, the interesting thing about the Eagles, 
what kind of shape both the teams going to be in when they play each other. We don't see the Eagles till December 19th. Really good point. It's another fascinating part about this quirky NFL schedule this year. Not the, not the 17th and play, game. And you played them twice. And you played them twice in three weeks. Yeah. It, it, the, with the, the Cowboys in between. The 17th game's been added, as we know, but just refreshing everybody's memory. Washington plays the Giants in week two on September 16th and then doesn't play another division game until three months down the road. And then they finish the season, Cowboys-Eagles, Cowboys-Eagles, Giants. Five straight division games. The Eagles, in their schedule this year, finish with Washington, Giants, Washington, Cowboys. The Cowboys finish their schedule this year with um, uh, Washington, Giants, Washington, then they play the Cardinals, then they finish with the Eagles. The Giants' schedule finishes with fewer division games, but still they go Cowboys, Eagles, Bears, Washington. So basically from mid-December until the second week in January, you're just going to have all of these NFC East matchups now, the people that always say, you know, just, you know, you got to focus on the division. You, you got to win. You got to have a winning record in the division. No, you, 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 you have to have a, a winning record with the other 11 games you play. You play 11 against non division teams, six in the division. You can go four and two in the division and end up in last place. Um, uh, see, but, but by the time you get to that point, unless, you know, teams get really injured or teams just aren't what we think. I think it's going to be all bunched up going into those final five, you know, weeks of the season. You know, you'll have eleven weeks in. I mean, you might have something like six and five, six and five, five and six, five and six going into those final five games. That wouldn't surprise me at all if we end up with that, and it could make for a really exciting month. With yes, that said, could. with that said, the best teams in the NFC overall, the true Super Bowl contenders aren't in that division. It might be exciting for us, but the Packers and the Buccaneers and the 49ers and the Rams at that point may already have, instead of six wins, they may already have 10 and headed towards, you know, home field games and a much better chance and a much better path to the Super Bowl. But who knows? It's an NFL season. Anything can happen. I I just wanted to make the point that I personally believe the NFC East is much more wide open than most people do. There isn't any team that I would, you know, that I would eliminate as a possibility of winning it. And the team that most people completely dismiss as a possibility, Philadelphia, uh, I agree with Ross Tucker. I think they're underrated, and I think Jalen Hurts is um, a guy to watch. He makes plays and he has played in a lot of big games during the course of his football career. And he played well last year at the end of the year with a porous team around him. That team's healthier and it's better this year than it was last year around him. Now, if he stinks, the only thing going, the only thing about the Eagles is new coach. I was just going to say, now, if he stinks or if the coach is really bad, Nick Sirianni and his staff, well, I mean, you know, that would derail the rest of uh, uh, the rest of the roster, which is pretty damn good. They got a good roster. Their defense could be nasty 
this year. Really nasty. It's older than Washington's defense, more experienced, also older. I mean, how many more great years of Fletcher Cox are we going to get? I mean, he is still, in my opinion, you know, a top five-ish kind of defensive player. Uh, you know, but he's he's got to be in his 30s at this point. Uh, certainly approaching it. Hold on. I'm going to tell you. He's 30 years old. Going to be 31 in the upcoming season. but Well, a, in seven more player. years, he'll be as old as the Washington football quarterback. <laughs> right. Um, but then in seven years, the Washington quarterback will be much older. Um, yes. All right. Do you have anything else? I got two things I want to get to. Okay. Uh, one of them is last night, Joe Banner. You followed Joe Banner, right? Yeah. Former Philadelphia <laughs> Uh, general manager, right, in, in Cleveland. Yes. Uh, and I like Joe. I, I follow his stuff. I like what he does. He's been on the show before. He, I've had him on the podcast before. Okay. And he tweeted, what happens when you take our greatest sports writer and have him write a book about the most intriguing, sto- intriguing story in recent sports history? You get a phenomenal book that every sports fan should read. Now, he's referring to a book by Seth Wickersham, who is a terrific reporter, yeah. called It's Better to Be Feared. Uh, it's about the New England Patriots, and actually I would like to read this book. But I retweeted, I quoted his tweet, with this on top of it, this is what happens with a picture of my book, oh. The Rise and Fall of ECW, it's... Extreme Championship Wrestling. Oh, my God. This is what happens. And the pushback I got from people who refused to believe I wrote a book about wrestling was unbelievable. It's on Amazon. It's there for you to buy. I didn't know I you wrote had written a book. book about I didn't know you had written a book about wrestling. I wrote a book. In fact, I got paid more for that book than any other book I've ever written. Really? Yes. <laughs> I got paid by the WWE for that book. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, uh, if for all you who think I'm falling, the rise and fall of ECW, Extreme Championship Wrestling, which I didn't know, even though I'm a wrestling guy from way back, I didn't know squat about ECW. It was this literally extreme form of professional wrestling that dominated the 1990s on TV. So, so there you go. Uh, and, uh, when you take a one, go. when you take one of our greatest sports writers and have him write yes. a book about the most yes. intriguing of stories in recent sports history, what you get is you get a phenomenal book that every sports fan should read. So I recommend the rise and fall of ECW, written by one Tom <laughs> Lavero, with extensive <laughs> interviews with Paul Hyman, Taz. Tommy Dreamer, and more. Paul Heyman. Paul Heyman. Who's a very interesting, interesting guy. I spent hours on the phone with, with, with that guy. Uh, I had two books going at once back then. Right. The other thing was, uh, you know, our discussion last podcast, that you're going to come speak to our, our, my, my class that I teach on the business of sports media at right. Georgetown. You're going to talk to them about sports gambling. Yes. Uh People suggested it could be a repeat of the Michael Scott going to speak 
to Ryan's class. <laughs> in the office. <laughs> uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll throw out hundred thousand dollar bars um, as part of it, um, and I'll tear up a book. That's the first thing I'll do. I'll say, "You got a textbook? Give me that textbook. Let me see that thing." And I'll rip the pages out of it. You know, um, the uh, this the Scott's Tots episode was on recently. That's the only episode I have a really hard time watching. I think that is the most cringe-worthy episode of a sitcom of all time. You know the episode I'm talking about when he goes back to that high oh, school yeah. after promising those kids that he would pay for their college. Uh, you know, yeah. I, and you, we both love this show so much. And I've seen, you know, I don't know. I've probably watched, I've probably watched Office start to finish five times and seen a lot of the episodes countless of times. And that Scott's Tots episode, and it was on the other day. I can't, I can't watch that. I cannot watch really? that. It's way, you know, people say that the dinner party is cringeworthy. The dinner party to me is the greatest sitcom episode I've ever watched. It, it was cringy, no doubt. It's painful, but it was brilliantly written and brilliantly, you know, executed from an acting standpoint. But that Scott's Tots thing, I mean, God, those poor people <laughs> going into that classroom. It's just too hard to watch. Too hard to watch. But anyway. You know, uh, have we, you gotten we, to Ted Lasso we know yet? Who, we know people who would have done that. So I listen. Okay, uh, how many how many networks do I need? How many streaming services do I need? Apple's easy. Why do I need it? I don't need it okay. to watch one sitcom. Right. No, um, it's not Sopranos. So no, no, it's not the Sopranos. It's not you know. Okay. It's not a drama. Um, it's a comedy. Is it The Office? No, it's not The Office. Uh, it's really good, and people have actually compared it to The Office because it's one of those comfort shows, I guess. It's a show that you can watch over and over again and and feel good, um, I guess. I don't know. Uh, but it has been compared to The Office, but no, I don't think it's anywhere near as good as The Office. Oh, by the way, let me just um, tell this quick story I was talking to Scott the other night, Scott Van Pelt, uh, and he called me and we were talking and we're catching up and, and he just said, um, and I said to him, you know, I'm watching this show, Ted Lasso, and you're in it. You know, it was one of those episodes, it was an early episode in the show where Scott does a sports center hit and it's a scripted sports center hit for the actual show itself. Uh, he's done a lot of those for movies and shows over the years. I can think of Moneyball. Um, now, I don't think he did anything that was scripted for Moneyball. I think they just took an actual Sports Center highlight that he read on the Oakland A's you know, winning streak uh, from Moneyball. But anyway, uh, he said, yeah, of course I know that I'm in that. Uh, they called me, and actually they called me because Jason Sudeikis wanted me in the show. He wanted me to do the hit. And I've had conversations with him, and we text back and forth every once in a while, and he is a great dude. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, Sudeikis is phenomenal playing Ted Lasso in this show. Wow. So there you go. That's good. But I have HBO Max. I have Amazon Prime. I have Netflix. I have Hulu. At what point does my streaming bill become bigger than my cable bill, which is not the point. 
Um, I don't know. I'm just telling you that this show on Apple TV is worth it. That, that's all I can tell you. Mm. I mean, I don't can't. Do you have? Do you have an iPhone? Can't? Can you watch it on your iPhone? I don't know. You don't know. Stop going places you don't know anything well, about. Well, I mean, you have an iPhone. It's an Apple TV show, so maybe, maybe you can watch it on your phone. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. Here, you know what? It's four ninety nine a month for Apple TV. Four ninety nine a month. Oh, also, um, thanks to the person that sent me uh, the information on Twitter, and I'm sorry I don't have it in front of me, but um, you know who you are. Uh, who sent me the information about Rebecca on Ted Lasso, that she was also on Game of Thrones. Um, I didn't know that. Uh, I would have never put that connection together, but um, I appreciate that. Uh, Hannah Waddingham, I think is her name in real life. Um, she plays Rebecca, the owner, Tommy, of of the uh, of the football team uh, that uh, Jason Sudeikis, the Ted Lasso coaches. She played in Game of Thrones, um, the woman who chants shame, shame, shame in the famous episode with Cersei uh, Lannister's Walk of Shame. Um, she would eventually get it. I forget the character's name. I forget her name. She's the one dressed like a nun. Uh, she works for the High Sparrow. Um, and after Cersei blows up uh, the, the Great Sept um, in one of the great episodes of all time, um, <laughs> The, the woman that plays Rebecca on Ted Lasso, um, who uh, was still alive, is left to uh, Sir Gregor. Uh, so that didn't work out uh, very well for her. But uh, I didn't realize they were uh, one and the same. Um, I don't know what the character's name was. I know who she is on Game of Thrones. I can't remember what the actual name of that character is. But uh, Hannah Waddingham is great as Rebecca, uh, in this show, Ted Lasso. So there you go. Well, I got to say that description makes me feel like there's a big void in my life. Well, there is. I've been telling you that for years. There is. All right. Are we done? I think so. All right. That's it for the day. Uh, I will be back tomorrow. More likely than not this week. Because the game is on Friday night, I'm going to do a show on Saturday morning recapping the preseason game. And so I'll probably do a show on Friday as well. So there's a chance uh, I won't do a show tomorrow. But uh, I'll keep you posted on that. All right, Tommy, have a good day. Uh, we'll, uh, We'll reconvene together next week. All right, boss. All right, see ya. When you make decisions for your company, you always look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing and shipping to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your process to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, books, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart if you sell online, schedule package pickups through the dashboard, and automatically see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers, with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are, even on the go. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other business decision makers with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.